Bible Podcast. Support this podcast www.nakedbiblevlog.com Welcome back to the Naked Bible Podcast. Today we begin a new topic, and with it, a short series on a doctrine that most listeners will have heard of or experienced firsthand. I think it would be difficult to find anyone who has spent any time in a Christian church or any denomination who has not heard of the Lord's Supper, also known as Communion, or the Lord's Table. But while most listeners will have heard of the doctrine before, I'm willing to bet few have really thought about, or perhaps stated more precisely, have ever questioned what they've been taught about it in light of their own reading of the Scriptures. Now, I've worshipped in a variety of traditions and taught theology for close to 15 years. I'm not kidding when I say that I'm convinced that this doctrine is one of the least critically examined of all biblical doctrines. If I made a top ten list of things churches do without much thinking, this would be on the list for sure. I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard one of the following unexamined statements about the Lord's Supper. Number one, Jesus' literal body and blood is somehow physically present in the bread and wine or juice. Now, this, of course, is the Roman Catholic conception of communion or transubstantiation. That is, where the bread and wine are transformed into the flesh and blood of Jesus at communion. Really? Does the Bible ever say that in connection with communion? Does Jesus, or parts of Jesus, really spend time, even a moment, in a baked item or a cup or our stomachs? If we're receiving grace, why does it have to come through our stomachs anyway? Do we expel part of Jesus when we go to the bathroom? What if a few crumbs fall on the floor and a mouse eats it? Is the mouse sanctified? Now, believe it or not, medieval Catholic theologians felt compelled to think about and argue about these sorts of things. And it's understandable given their theological position. Who said theology can't be entertaining reading? You ought to try some of that stuff. Now, Protestants have different ways of talking about the Lord's Supper and what supposedly happens when believers partake of the bread and wine. Here's our second statement. The Spirit of Jesus is present in the bread and wine, or juice. What's that supposed to mean? And why is it necessary to even say, Since the New Testament identifies the presence of Jesus with the presence of the Spirit, isn't he everywhere in a spiritual sense already? And while we're at it, if we're talking about a spiritual presence anyway, why localize Jesus in these two items? Statement number three. Jesus, or his Spirit, is in and around the bread and wine, but not actually in it. Now, what this is saying is that Jesus' presence or his spirit is sort of in the room or something, but not connected directly with the bread and the wine or the juice. Now, is this presence different than Jesus' normal spiritual presence everywhere? If not, why consider his visit during communion any more special than any other context? And if so, where do we get that idea? Is there any passage in the Bible that says the presence of Jesus is heightened 
or more special at this event than any others? Why is Jesus more present at communion than, say, when someone is led to belief in Jesus, or when the gospel is presented, or when someone's suffering is helped in some significant way? It really makes little sense when you think about it. Here are some others. Number four. Children below a certain age must not partake of the Lord's Supper unless they have made a profession of faith and, of course, been baptized in some denominations. Now, my question is, why? What is the scriptural basis for this idea? What other practice in church that lay people do should be prohibited for children? Singing? Giving money? Listening to the sermon? Reading a Bible verse? Why aren't these things so sacred that children shouldn't be doing them? And is something mystical happening that shouldn't involve children? Number five, we need to confess known sin before we partake of the elements, or else we might become ill and even die at God's hand. I have to wonder why God doesn't strike unrepentant people when they enter the church building, or maybe out in the parking lot. After all, if God's presence is everywhere, and frankly for New Testament theology, sacred space, the dwelling of the presence of God, is the believer, him or herself, not the church building. We don't have temples anymore like in the Old Testament. We are the temple, according to 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20. Maybe we think this way since we're thinking Jesus only shows up when we get the crackers and juice out. And that doesn't happen in the parking lot or anywhere else, only in the church. My point is, why doesn't God take action to punish unrepentant sin, such as when we see that other believer in church refuting with and don't confess it, or when a lustful or bitter thought pops into our head? Would we be smitten for those things only if we were holding a communion wafer? I mean, is that how God works? Does this make any sense at all? Lastly, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Now, if you've ever heard that one, has anyone ever explained it to you? What exactly does the phrase means of grace mean? Is there some kind of grace only given when crackers and juice are present? If those items were removed from the service, would God be unable to dispense some particular grace? Has anyone ever explained to you how the idea wouldn't contradict salvation by grace through faith alone? Or how forbidding children would make any sense if it's non-saving grace that God is giving out? Why shouldn't the kids have that too? If all this makes your head hurt, or maybe makes you wonder how something as simple as sharing bread and wine turned into a quasi-mystical or paranormal event, you've come to the right place. This is certainly a job for the Naked Bible. I hope you'll stick with me over the next few podcasts. Toward getting you prepped for the next episode, you should take a look at the New Testament passages that deal with this subject. There really aren't that many. The main passage for the Lord's Supper, as far as its meaning goes, is 1 Corinthians 11, 17-33. The original event that spawned the institution is recorded in Matthew 26, verses 26-28, to Mark 14, verses 22 through 24, Luke 22, 19, and 20. 
And you might be thinking, well, what about John? There's that bread and wine and flesh and blood passage in John chapter 6. Well, you can go ahead and read that, but you're going to find something very interesting later in an episode of the podcast as to really question whether John 6 ought to even be in the discussion. These are texts from which our doctrine of the Lord's Supper ought to derive in some way, or that relate in some way. So try to read them before listening to the next podcast. And as you read, ask yourself a simple question. Where do we find any of the thoughts that I just ran through in these passages? It's time to put your creeds aside, take off the denominational blinders, and focus on the biblical text. First Corinthians ten and twenty three <clears throat> from the Faith Life Logos app. Faith Life Logos Bible Study app. First Corinthians ten and twenty three. Do all to the glory of God. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And this is Paul speaking, the Apostle Paul. Head coverings. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. And that it goes into deep into the mystery religions, some of their beliefs and traditions. Oh, Let's see if there's a link to that. Click on that. There's a a link to that. Well, the Greek for wife is Gune or Guni, G U N E, long E, Guni. This term may refer to a woman or a wife, depending on the context. This is uh, one of the best study tools that I've been able to find. It's this Faith Life Logos Bible Study app and all the Faith Life apps in the App Store. Outstanding. Anyways, the 
the I guess theology behind all of this about the head coverings taken in the context and the timeline that Paul was referring to the theology was built upon centuries in millennium millennia of beliefs so he's not just um, making it up as he goes along this had to do with um, the fertility their ability the belief that the longer the woman's hair, the more fertile she would be in conceiving children. And uh, that's just briefly what he's referring to here. That's a little bit. That's the only part of what he's referring to. Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman, for a wife, to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined 
to be contentious. We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, there's a lot to unpack there because the man or the theology that he's referring to that um, refers to the man's I guess virility is the the word that if he had long hair it was considered by some not all but in this passage he's referring to the theology that the man with the long hair was less likely to conceive, be able to produce children, and that the woman, just the opposite, was believed for the woman. So this is not uh, something that proved out to be true over time. It doesn't prove uh, genetics as we know it today, but that was part of what they believed and was taught. So, um, <laughs> this will be shocking to some people because this these scriptures are taken out of context, they're taught in our day out of context without all the theology that these scriptures are based on. Okay, now the Lord's Supper begins at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized when you come together it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal one goes hungry another gets drunk what do you not have Houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said quote this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me End quote. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, quote, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In quote, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Twenty-seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. To me, uh, uh, that just gave me new insight. <laughs> um, it to me that doesn't speak to just the individual. I guess it can, but since he was referring to their entire group that would in my mind that would speak to the the fellowship the eating together in fellowship whether or not they're eating at home or whether they're eating say in a large setting to my mind that says the best approach is to gather together rather than just eating on the run. One person grab a snack and run. 
But if they're eating in remembrance of Christ, then that's a communal or collective act of, of worship. That's, that's what it says to me. I can't speak for anyone else. It doesn't say that they can never eat alone or that they can never eat unless they're eating in remembrance of the Lord. It doesn't say that. To me, it says the opposite. So, But I was born thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years after he made this uh, declaration. So he wasn't writing it for me. He was writing it for them, to those people, and for my benefit, but it was written to them and applies to their lifestyle, their style of, of worship and practice. I think we stopped with 30, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 33 So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's what I thought he meant right there. 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So this is what Paul was writing to the church or the believers in Corinth. in response to whatever they were 
having issues celebrating the Lord's Supper or celebrating what is called communion. Well, check out the Faith Life Study Logos Bible Study app and all the other ones, the flashcards. But this Bible study app is so full of free resources. It's, you you just will be amazed. You will not be disappointed. Listen to the reading of the Logos Bible Study app. The upper room is prepared. That's Matthew 26, beginning with verse 7. Matthew 26 and 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed and he sent Peter and John saying go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat so they said to him where do you want us to prepare and he said to them behold when you have entered the city a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water follow him into the house which he enters then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready in quote 13 so they went and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. 
Passover is celebrated. Matthew 26 and verse 14. Twenty six and fourteen. Verse fourteen. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer Eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and Divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The Lord's Supper is instituted. Matthew 26 and 19. Twenty six and nineteen. First nineteen. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, quote, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, quote, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Christ predicts his betrayer, Matthew 26, verse 
in 21. Twenty-six and twenty-one. Verse twenty-one. Quote, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. End quote. <clears throat> Twenty-three. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. The disciples argue over who is the greatest. Matthew 26 and 24. Twenty six and twenty four. Verse 24. <clears throat> now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, Quote, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves. Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. 
but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Welcome back in. You're very welcome in to this study this morning, or it's afternoon now. (laughs) It was raining like cats and dogs. Maybe uh, Noah and his ark will come by any minute if this rain doesn't stop. Well, We're going to switch it up a little bit here in the App Store. There's an audio book titled The Art and Craft of Biblical Preaching, a Comprehensive Resource for today's communicators by Zondervan C-O-N-D-E-R-V-A-N Zondervan We're going to hear the preview Part 1 The High Call of Preaching 14 minutes. Oh, it's gone. Oh, my goodness. Zondervan. We'll have to type it back in. Zondervan. Audiobooks. How can I be faithful to what God intends preaching to be and do? Chapter 1. Convictions of Biblical Preaching. Haddon Robinson. To do the tough work of being biblical preachers, men and women in ministry must be committed to certain truths. 1. The Bible is the Word of God. As Augustine put it, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. This is the conviction that if I can really understand a passage in its context, then what I know is what God wants to say. I don't believe that many evangelicals, as well as liberals, really believe this. 2. 
the entire Bible is the Word of God. Not only Romans, but Leviticus. Not only Ephesians, but Esther. Not merely the hot passages, but the cold ones. Three, the Bible is self-authenticating. If people can be exposed to an understanding of the Scriptures on a regular basis, then they do not need arguments about the veracity of Scripture. Therefore, a listener or reader doesn't have to buy into the first two commitments before God can work in a person's life through His Word. 4. This leads to a thus-saith-the-Lord approach to preaching. I am not referring to a homiletical method here, but to a desire to open up the Scriptures so that the authority of the message rests on the Bible. This works against the anti-authoritarian spirit of our society. 5. The student of the Bible must try to get at the intent of the biblical writer. The first question is, what did the biblical writer want to say to the biblical reader? Why? The reader response theory embraced by many literary scholars today will not work for the study of the Bible. Simply put, the Bible cannot mean what it has not meant. 6. The Bible is a book about God. It is not a religious book of advice about the answers we need about a happy marriage, sex, work, or losing weight. Although the scriptures reflect on many of those issues, they are, above all, about who God is and what God thinks and wills. I understand reality only if I have an appreciation for who He is and what He desires for His creation and from His creation. 7. We don't make the Bible relevant. We show its relevance. Truth is as relevant as water to thirst or food to hunger. Modern advertising creates needs that don't really exist to move the merchandise. Chapter 2. A Definition of Biblical Preaching. John Stott. I intend to supply a definition of biblical exposition and to present a case for it. It seems to me that these two tasks belong together in that the case for biblical exposition is to be found in its definition. Here, then, is the definition. To expound Scripture is to open up the inspired text with such faithfulness and sensitivity that God's voice is heard and His people obey Him. Now let me draw out the implications of this definition in such a way as to present a case for biblical exposition. The definition contains six implications. Two convictions about the biblical text, two obligations in expounding it, and two expectations in consequence. Two convictions about the biblical text. 1. It is an inspired text. To expound Scripture is to open up the inspired text. Revelation and inspiration belong together. Revelation describes the initiative God has taken to unveil Himself and so to disclose Himself, since without this revelation He would remain the unknown God. Inspiration describes the process by which he has done so, namely by speaking to and through the biblical prophets and apostles, 
and by breathing his word out of his mouth in such a way that it came out of their mouths as well. Well, that was the preview, the art and craft of biblical preaching, a comprehensive resource for today's communicators. Welcome back in at 2.22 p.m. The day is going really fast. And we finally got a break from all the rain. But it will be back. At least for another 24 hours. Right, we have another book, The African Origin of Civilization, Myth or Reality, by Sheikh Anta Diop. Going to hear a preview. First, we'll read a little bit about this. This classic presents historical, archaeological, and anthropological evidence to support the theory that ancient Egypt was a black civilization. And that was part of uh, a great debate that Sheikh Diop and Diop or Theophile Obenga gave at the United Nations. They debated 18 eminent Egyptologists many decades ago on the issue. And let's find that real quick. That may be on this app, this other app. The Mystery Religions, Angus. The book review, book review. Well, it may be on this podcast. This the mystery religions. It's not that one. Preview. The mystery religions. The king. It's not on here. Well, it may have been posted early this morning on this podcast. But I also saw it on one of the Facebooks 
one of these Facebooks, if I can find it. Uh, um, how's everybody doing today? <coughs> how's everybody doing today? <coughs> Oh, not this one, I guess. <coughs> Excuse me. Kind of dry, dry throat. It's, um, the weather changes and, uh, Everything else changes. Hair, skin, eyes. So you have to change your... Your program. With all of the... <laughs> the changes that your body goes through. <clears throat> okay, I think this lady... May have this Ujama Cooperative Cooperative Economics Day Four of Kwanzaa. Happy Kwanzaa. Ujama means Cooperative Economics. Look through all of my files real quick to see if I can find find this uh, oh I got a clue where I might find it in Gmail there might be a link the African origins. Um, the the sum nope. The great bearing no. Oh man. I know I saved it. The African origins two twenty one p.m. Naked Bible. Sun, the great pay, COVID vaccine. Oh, oh, that's that's too bad. I don't see it. Maybe I can find it. I like to. Post things in several different places so that I can find them, but doesn't always work out. Can't find it. Oh, I think I know where I can find this on this page. Yeah, I like to keep several different um, 
Facebooks and groups and all that. Here it is. Sheikh Anta Diop and Theo Filet Obenga. Okay, at the it says Black History Studies. Well, who posted this? I think the African History Network pasted face Facebook pasted this at the nineteen seventy four UNESCO conference. Egyptology was dealt a fatal blow. So that was nineteen seventy four. Two African scholars wiped the floor with 18 world-renowned Egyptologists. They proved in 11 different categories of evidence that the ancient Egyptians, excuse me, <coughs> the ancient Egyptians were black. The question of what race were the ancient Egyptians was resolved at the historic International Cairo Symposium held from January 28th through February 3rd, 1974. The United Nations Educational Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, convened 20 of the world's top Egyptologists to debate the race of the founders of ancient Egyptian civilization. It was assumed by the vast majority of European Egyptologists that the ancient Egyptians were either Caucasians or Western Asiatics. At the conference, only two African scholars, Sheikh Anta Diop, he spells as C-H-E-I-K-H, Sheikh Anta, A-N-T-A, Diop, or Diop. D-I-O-P and Theophile T-H-E-O-P-H-I-L-E Obenga O-B-E-N-G-A held that the Egyptians were black Africans while the other participants took opposing Positions against the Diop Obenga thesis, armed with a formidable body of evidence from numerous academic disciplines. Diop presented specific information to prove the black origins of Kemet, K E M E T, that was the former name of what is now today called 
Egypt, Sudan, and some other territories on in East Africa, Northeast Africa. It is obvious from the conference report that Diop dominated the proceedings and confronted with his solid arguments most of the participants changed their positions. Yeah. He's, he's a highly respected scholar and um, edu- educator in the world, but definitely in Africa. One of his family members came here to visit. They are wonderful people, very intelligent and polite, very thoughtful. All right, that was what we needed. Now the book, we were going to listen to some of, it's an audio book. Okay, I guess we can hear some of it, narrated by Frank Block, The African Origin of Civilization. Myth of Reality. He has so many books. Oh my goodness. Let's listen in. Chapter 1 What Were the Egyptians? Oh, you can you can listen to one hour. Uh oh. Uh oh. Listen to one hour, but... In contemporary descriptions of the ancient Egyptians, this question is never raised. Eyewitnesses of that period formally affirm that the Egyptians were blacks. On several occasions, Herodotus insists on the Negro character of the Egyptians and even uses this for indirect demonstrations. For example, to prove that the flooding of the Nile could not be caused by melting snow... He cites, among other reasons he deems valid, the following observation. It is certain that the natives of the country are black with the heat. To demonstrate that the Greek oracle is of Egyptian origin, Herodotus advances another argument. Lastly, by calling the dove black, they, the Dodonians, indicated that the woman was Egyptian. The doves in question symbolize two Egyptian women, allegedly kidnapped from Thebes to found the oracles of Dodona and Libya. To show that the inhabitants of Colchis were of Egyptian origin and had to be considered a part of Sisostris's army who had settled in that region, Herodotus says, the Egyptians said that they believed the Colchians to be descended from the army of Sisostris. My own conjectures were founded, first on the fact that they are black-skinned and have woolly hair. Finally, Concerning the population of India, 
Herodotus distinguishes between the Padeans and other Indians, describing them as follows. They all also have the same tint of skin, which approaches that of the Ethiopians. Diodorus of Sicily writes, The Ethiopians say that the Egyptians are one of the colonies which was brought into Egypt by Osiris. They even allege that this country was originally underwater, but that the Nile dragging much mud as it flowed from Ethiopia had finally filled it in and made it a part of the continent. They add that from them, as from authors and ancestors, the Egyptians get most of their laws. It is from them that the Egyptians have learned to honor kings as gods and bury them with such pomp. Sculpture and writing were invented by the Ethiopians. The Ethiopians cite evidence that they are more ancient than the Egyptians, but it is useless to report that here. If the Egyptians and Ethiopians were not of the same race, Theodorus would have emphasized the impossibility of considering the former as a colony, i.e. fraction of the latter, and the impossibility of viewing them as forebears of the Egyptians. In his geography, Strabo mentioned the importance of migration in history. In believing that this particular migration had proceeded from Egypt to Ethiopia, remarks, Egyptians settled Ethiopia and Colchis. Once again, it is a Greek, despite his chauvinism, who informs us that the Egyptians, Ethiopians, and Colchians belong to the same race, thereby confirming what Herodotus had said about the Colchians. The opinion of all the ancient writers on the Egyptian race is more or less summed up by Gaston Maspero, 1846-1916. By the almost unanimous testimony of ancient historians, they belonged to an African race. Read Negro, which first settled in Ethiopia on the Middle Nile. Following the course of the river, they gradually reached the sea. Moreover, the Bible states that Mesriam, son of Ham, brother of Chus, Cush, the Ethiopian, and of Canaan, came from Mesopotamia to settle with his children on the banks of the Nile. According to the Bible, Egypt was peopled by the offspring of Ham, ancestor of the blacks. The descendants of Ham are Chus, Mesriam, Phut, and Canaan. The descendants of Chus are Seba, Avila, Sabatha, Rugma and Sabathacha. Chus was the father of Nimrod. He was the first to be conqueror on the earth. Mesriam became the father of Ludim, Anamim, Labim, Nachuhim, Fethrusim, Chastusim. Canaan became the father of Sid, his firstborn, and Heth. For the peoples of the Near East, Mesriam still designates Egypt, Canaan, the entire coast of Palestine and Phoenicia, Senar, which was probably the site from which Nimrod left for Western Asia, still indicates the kingdom of Nubia. What is the value of these statements? Coming from my witnesses, they could hardly be false. Oh, oh well, they have a, a one-hour version, but we just heard part of it. The African origin of civilization, myth, or reality. This is a, a must-read author, Sheikh Anta Diop.
There's the pre-colonial Black Africa. This is an ebook. And it's what he has many civilization of barbarism and authentic and anthropology. Yeah, that's one of his specialties anthropology, archaeology. Oh, Diop and Ya Alengi Mi Emma in Gemi. Two of them. Well, guess we can see if there are any more Diop books. This one, well, doesn't look like it. Sheikh Anta Diop. What is this? A there's an app. It's the Diop School Group. Oh, it's in French. Uh, I could stumble through it, but I wouldn't understand, but maybe half of it. And it wouldn't just be too embarrassing to slaughter such a beautiful language. Oh, well. That's what they have here. Is this app and see if there's anything new mobile dictionary Ute the U-T-E mobile dictionary and there's an Arabic Kunun What is this? Let me check. Application for use by people interested in familiarity with the laws of the country. It's all in Arabic. Oh, well. Always something good and fun to learn. Mm. History of Russia. That's fascinating. Oh, it's it's um. <laughs> it's something that you. You must treat yourself too if you're a history buff.
if you really want to just enjoy yourself, study a little bit of Russian history. I, I'll say a little bit because there's so much of it. But you won't regret it. Thank you for listening.